0: Okay, we are in 1 Samuel, chapter 10. 1 Samuel, chapter 10. And last time we had talked about, we had read the first portion about how Samuel had anointed Saul to be ruler. And then he proclaimed over him several things that would happen, three specific things he said would happen. So let's read that again. 1 Samuel chapter 10, reading from verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you go from me today, then you will find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at at, at Zelza. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for have been found now behold your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying what shall I do about my son then you will go from there and you will go as far as the oak of Tabor and there three men will go up to God at Bethel and they will meet you one carrying three young goats another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a jug of wine And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. And afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that they will meet, that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from a high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them, and they will be prophesying. So there were three signs that were given to to Saul, to confirm. So, God is giving him signs as to the authenticity of the anointing that he is receiving. Because it's kind of unbelievable. Remember, there had never been a human king in Israel. So, that a prophet is anointing you and saying that you're king. What really substantiates this? So, he gives him these three things. He says, this day, these three things are going to happen. The first is... You're going to meet somebody by Rachel's tomb in Benjamin and they're going to say to you the donkeys that you were looking for has, have been found and now your father is looking for you. Oh, well, maybe that would happen by coincidence. So he gives them a second sign. He says you're going to be seeing these you're going to see these three men, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves, and another carrying a jug of wine. And so now that goes beyond any coincidence that could happen when he sees that, and they're going to offer him two loaves of bread, he's to accept it. Then he's going to go and he's going to see a group of people prophesying. So those three signs came about on that day. Now, let's read in verse 6. Now, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be, when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. And you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel. God changed his heart and all these signs came about on that day. And he went to the hill there. Behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about... When all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What's happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man there said, Now who is is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now, Saul's uncle said to him, And his servants, where did you go? And he said to look for the donkeys. And when we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel told you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which Samuel had mentioned. And so you see that. In verse 8, Samuel said to him, and you shall go down before me to Gilgal. So after all these things take place, you go, go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. He says, you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Verse 8 was a commandment about Saul waiting for Samuel to come. This is going to be the first occasion of several occasions where Saul does not follow the directions of Samuel. And it's going to end up becoming his downfall. It's not this one occasion of not listening. It was a multiplicity of occasions of not listening to Samuel the prophet. Or not waiting the appointed time that ended up causing real problems for King Saul. And have you ever heard of John Maxwell, the the guy who teaches uh, these leadership seminars? You've heard of John Maxwell. I guess it must be a generational thing. Um, So he, he, he talks about how we're given trust in certain situations. And it's sort of like change in your pocket. So people hire you for a task. Or they entrust you with something and they give you a pocket full of change. And each time we don't follow through on something that's expected of us, we give up a handful of change. And after a few occasions like that, we've lost all the change in our pocket. And he gives this example. It's like a church that has hired a new pastor. So the church is all excited because this new pastor is there. They come up to the first Sunday, the pastor's supposed to be there and and um he doesn't show up for church. The pastor doesn't show up. Then the next day he comes into work and all the all the elders of the church are there, waiting in the conference room. He's wondering, What's going on? This is Monday morning and The elders of the church are here. So he goes in and sits down and the elders of the church are just looking at him, waiting for an explanation. And he looks at them, he says, And so what's the difficulty? And they said, Well, yesterday was Sunday, and the new pastor says, Did I forget? Yesterday was Sunday. I knew I was forgetting something. I even told my wife, I feel like I should be somewhere. He's given up a lot of change on on that first day of work. You see what I mean? From that point on, they're always going to be suspicious. I mean, if he blows it one more time, I'll tell you he's out of there. One more Sunday, if he misses, he's out of there. We're given a pocket full of change but with continued lapses. Now, all of us can forget something. We all miss appointments. I've missed plenty of appointments. But if I miss an appointment, I am really, really careful that I don't miss the makeup appointment with that person. Really careful. I'll leave myself multiplicity of notes. I'll tell my secretary, remind me. Because you don't want to miss an appointment with that person a second time, or else it really says something once made an appointment with a student because his mother wanted me to meet with him. And so I made an appointment with this student to meet him for lunch. And he never showed up. So, you know, I'm there waiting at the restaurant and he never showed up. And I thought, well, you know, over the next day or two I'll get an email. And I never got an email from him. Nothing, nothing did I ever get from him. And, uh, you know, just kind of disappeared and then finally, a while later, I talked to him about this. He says, I don't even remember we had lunch planned. I said, you know, I've got a message from you. I've got a series of emails. and, and uh, uh, But it left me with something about the guy. This, this is the first occasion that he messes up. So remember that. When you're given responsibility, it's like change in your pocket. And a few times of handing out fiscal change, people no longer will use you. But what I really want to look at is this occasion, these three things happen. In verse 5, it talks about the prophesying. You're going to see men prophesying. It says in verse 6, Then the Spirit of God will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. So he left it kind of open. He said, when these things happen, do what the occasion requires. In other words, things are going to happen. Something's going to change. In verse 9 it says, Then it happened when he turned his back to leave to leave Samuel. God changed his heart and all those signs came about on that day. In the one day those three signs came about, But as he turned his back, God changed his heart. Just like that. God changed his heart. He turned his back to leave. And God did something on Samuel's heart. This sort of thing happens. God changed his heart. On that one occasion, he turned around, God changed his heart. And... In verse 10 it says, And when they came to the hill there, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. So exactly what had been told was, you will meet these prophets. And back up in verse 6, Samuel had told them, When you see them, the Spirit of God is going to come on you, and you shall, will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And here, Saul starts prophesying. Something happened. Something changed in his heart. This happens very often on the day of salvation, when a person has gone a portion of their lives, usually into adulthood, where they've not known the Lord. And then, when they come to an occasion where they come into union with God and fellowship with God and give their hearts over to the Lord, God changes their hearts. And sometimes things happen that are really amazing on those days. For me, it was in 1977, I was a freshman in college, and I was all alone in my room, and I invited Jesus into my heart. Something happened to me on that day. To this day, I remember it. I asked Jesus to forgive me. Again, all alone in my room. I was on my knees. Somebody had told me about the Lord. Somebody had told me about asking God to forgive me. And it was November 7th, 1977, and I asked Jesus to fill my life. And it was as if He was standing in the room with me. And I opened my eyes to see Him, and I saw nothing, but something happened. And so much so that that I never told anybody. And two weeks later, the guy who had shared with me asked me if I had received Jesus. And I said, yes, I think I have. Why do you ask? And he says, because you haven't stopped smiling for two weeks. Something changed. Something was different in my heart. Something happened to me within on that day that I know. This is what happened to Saul. And Saul confirmed it even with Saul starting to prophesy. Something that he had never done before. Because it says in verse 11, And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now Saul himself was not a prophet, but a spirit of prophecy fell upon him, so he was used on that occasion in a spirit of prophecy, when he was surrounded by other prophets. There was another occasion in his life where it happened as well. But he himself was not a prophet. But a spirit of prophecy came upon him. Sometimes I'll be talking with somebody and God will give me a word of wisdom. Now, there are some people that have a particular gift in a word of wisdom, where God so often is speaking to them words of wisdom that go beyond human understanding. And, and even, even this past weekend, I was in a board meeting. And, you know, a difficult situation arose and people started firing at other people. And there were... One person brought several emails that had been sent to him by somebody else who's on the board. And that person happened to bring several email copies with him. And they were just loaded to go at it. And... and, and um, then, then there were, there's other people on the board, you know, there's a lawyer on the board, and he started saying, you know, well, the law requires this, and the law requires that. And the other guy on the board was just kind of, didn't know what to do. And, and I was just saying, Lord, help me. And it's as if it just became crystal clear what to do. And I said, finally, when it came around, and I was given the floor... I grabbed these two men's hands because they were sitting on either side of me. I said, I just want to pray for you two guys. So we bowed our heads and prayed. Then I just started to share. I said, you know, those emails that that you wrote to him, I could see why you wrote those. Because this individual is, you know, kind of artistic and he's kind of loose with certain details about things and it got you really upset. And then I turned to the other guy and I said, you know, I could see how what he wrote really upset you because you were really trying to do well. And and then I showed them how from each of their perspectives, they were right. They were both right. And I said, do you see from his perspective how that could hurt? And then I turned to do you see how his perspective, when you didn't do this, how that really hurt him? So there's truth in both, of what, in, 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 in both of you and in what you're saying. And it just, just everything, you know, all the legal arguments, all the other stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. All right. And the whole thing just went away. This was a word of wisdom and not that I function all the time in words of wisdom. I don't. But on that occasion, on that instance, when a person has a particular gift, they're able to function in that gift all the time. You look at Shireen. She can walk into any kitchen and make it alive because she has this gift of hospitality. Whenever we go to people's homes for dinner, she ends up in the kitchen working and cleaning and doing said, How do you know how to do this? You know, this is somebody else's kitchen. How do you know what to do? I mean, there can even be paid workers in there where we go into these big houses and they hire some company to do this. She's in there helping the workers. She knows how to do this type of thing. She functions in that gift of hospitality, doesn't care, doesn't matter where it is. I can once in a while be hospitable, once in a while. But it's it's sort of like this, it's a miraculous thing. <laughs> you know, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon me, you know, somehow, and people will say, I didn't know Dr. Tour could do dishes, and the, you know, what's happened to the, you know... The son of his father. I mean, he can't do this type of thing. He was functioning in this. Sometimes what you will see, you will see a person get saved. Say, in a worship service. And they are just worshipping, like, you know, just going nuts in this worship service. And you think that, look at them. They just have this, this... Well, no, they're really themselves. They got saved and something miraculous happened that day. That first few weeks, something really happened in my heart. Something happened to Saul. But God is able to do something in an instant upon a heart. He does it differently with different people. If children grow up in a Christian home and hear about Jesus from... As far back as they can remember, often there's a different type of thing that they don't remember the day that they started believing. You know, I've written down in my Bible the dates when, when you know, my children, quote-unquote, received the Lord, where I had this discussion with them, or I drew them pictures and explained it to them. And, and, uh, uh, and they would say, yes, I believe, and I'd note that day. But very often they'll come to a point in their life when they're teenagers and there's some sort of real recommitment where it really starts to gel and make sense. Some people just flow in that. But God is able to take a man or a woman who's never had any of this and on a single day, in a single instant, bring a change. So that the heart is changed. Saul changed on that day. There are other instances of that. Look in, in Matthew I'm sorry in Mark Mark chapter five. <clears throat> Look at this change that occurs. In Mark chapter five, we'll start reading from verse one. Mark five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. And he got out of the boat. Immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Okay, so this is a pretty rough guy. I don't think anybody here can, you know, can claim this. You know, as tough as your past is, I mean, this guy is amazing. He lived among the tombs. They would, you know, send groups of men to bind him with chains, and he would break them with shackles and with chains, tear, himself, tear these in pieces. No one could subdue the man. And then he would sit up in the, in the graveyards and gash himself with rocks. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down to him and shouting with a loud voice said, What business do we have with each other, with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So what prompted this man to do this? Because Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. If you think that Jesus spoke one word, spirit come out, and boom, the spirit came out. He didn't in this instance. Not that Jesus couldn't have commanded the thing out with just a thought, with a single word, Jesus could have. But on this instance, Jesus didn't command it out with a single word. It said, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter into them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down over the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. So Jesus is commanding the demons to come out. Commanding. Had been commanding multiple times. So when you see somebody praying... Multiple times, you don't think, well, if you were really spiritual, you only have to pray once. No, Jesus gave us an example. In this case, He was casting out a demon. He didn't even just say it once. He was saying it a multiple, a multiple of times. He was doing this multiple times. Again and again. Not that He couldn't, but for our sakes. So that if we're ever in this, and we have to deal with issues in our lives more than once, it doesn't mean that we particularly aren't children of God. Jesus does it for our sake, so that we can see. And then the demons don't come out. They start negotiating with him. Well, if we come out, don't make us leave this land. Let us go into the swine over there, up in the hill. You'd think Jesus would say, no, get out of here and never come back. Go far, far away. You know, Go to, I don't know, in the bottom of the Pacific, or something he says, okay, you know, we can accept that bargain. They go out of the man, they go into the swine. If you think that's because demons have to live in some living thing, well, then the swine just all died a minute later. They were all dead. You know, you had to figure this out. So it's really hard to build theologies from this sort of thing. It says in verse 13, I'm sorry, in verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. It says in another one of the Gospels that this man used to run around naked in the tombs. That's why it says here he was clothed. You know, we assume that, you know, why should it say he was clothed? Because we assume it doesn't say every person in the Bible you meet in the Bible, it doesn't say he was clothed. No, we assume they had clothes. But in this instance, it says he was clothed because in the other Gospels, it reports that he used to run around naked in, in, in the tombs, around the tombs. So now he was clothed. And in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion and they became frightened. God changed the heart of a man on a single day. In a single instance, Jesus was able to do that. God does that today. He's able to change the heart of men. God does that. It is a miraculous work. Saul was changed in a single day. In a single moment, his heart was changed. Why didn't Saul just start walking and not have any problems? For the same reason that we get saved, we know the Lord, and we have all sorts of spats of rebellion. David knew the Lord very well, but he ended up raping a woman, having her husband killed, all the time when he's saved. You go into the prisons. I've worked in the prisons for ten years. Lots of saved people in the prison. I mean, these guys are authentically saved. And they didn't just receive the Lord in the prison. Some of them did, but many of them didn't. They had received the Lord as children. Long before they ever went into prison. Things happened where they drifted. This happens to people just as happened to Saul. It does not negate what God does, the work that He does. In a single day, He can change a person. In a single moment, He can change the heart. In a single instance, salvation can come. But problems, too, can arise. We can give up those pockets full of change with God. I was reading this week by uh, a portion by Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. And he's, he's expounding upon the verse of Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, which says, "...the Lord thy God... "...will turn thy thy captivity." And this is what he says concerning that verse. Remember the verse is, "...the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity." God's own people may sell themselves into captivity by sin. A very, very bitter fruit is this, of an exceedingly bitter root. What a bondage it is, when the child of God is sold under sin, held in chains by Satan, deprived of his liberty, robbed of his power in prayer, and his delight and his delight in the Lord. Let us watch that we come not into such bondage, but if this has already happened to us, let us by no means despair. But we cannot be held in slavery forever. The Lord Jesus has paid too high a price for our redemption to leave us in the enemy's hand. The way to freedom is, return unto the Lord thy God. Where we first found salvation, we shall find it again. At the foot of Christ's cross, confessing sin, we shall find pardon and deliverance. Moreover, the Lord will have us obey his voice according to all that he has commanded us. And we must do this with all our hearts and our souls, and then our captivity shall end. Often depression of spirit and great misery of soul is removed as soon as we quit our idols and bow ourselves in obedience before the living God. We need not be captives. We may return to Zion citizenship, and that speedily. Let us turn our captivity. You know, I, I can tell, you know, a while back I got an email from a student. And I had known this student several years before and saw them really excited about the Lord. And I got an email. They said that they wanted to get together and talk. I hadn't seen them for a long time. They wanted to get together and talk. And I said, sure. Um, Uh, um, you you want to come and talk to me? I know that you you attend such and such a church. Have you talked to the pastor about this? He says, well, I don't feel comfortable talking to the pastor about this. I said, okay, I'm flattered that you you, you, would want to share with me. And then he said, here's the nature of my questions. And there was, you know, about ten questions. Nothing wrong with the questions. Common questions, really all the questions that people come with, I've seen before. Nothing surprises me. It really doesn't. They're all the same sort of questions. And it doesn't shock God either. God's not amazed at this, not at all. But I could tell where he was at by the type of questions. I'll give you the example. Here's one of them. It is clear from science that we have evolved. But God doesn't talk about that in the Bible, so clearly God has lied. Why has he lied to us? Now, just the way he frames the question, I can see that he's kind of drifting in his faith. And my reply back to him was, you know, I can tell you're drifting pretty far. Because just the way you ask some of these questions, for example, insinuating that God has lied. Maybe there's another possibility here. Maybe there's something else here. These are very easy questions for me to answer. And God doesn't mind these questions. But I said, I want you to think back, and I wrote to him, I want you to think back to a few years ago when I saw you, how excited you were about the Lord. I'll bet you're not that way right now. And part of an indication is how you will receive this email from me as you're reading it. Will you become bitter and angry as you read this? Or will you receive it and say, yes, I have moved quite far away from the Lord? And he emailed back kindly. He says, well, when you knew me a few years ago, I wasn't really, you know, I I was moving in a way that was not really me. You know, now I'm more me and I have these questions. So anyway, so we arranged to get together and everything is fine. These are simple questions, but you can tell by the way people are. And I know this not because I've studied people. I know this because I've watched myself. When I start becoming angry, cynical, critical, discontent, and complaining, I know that I'm drifting from the presence of God. That doesn't mean that I've lost my salvation. That doesn't mean the reality of what Jesus did to me on that day, on November 7th, 1977, didn't have its effect. It had an extraordinary effect. I was going around telling all sorts of people about Jesus. I had a shirt made up that says, I've been born again. That was before there were Christian shirts. There were only Christian people back then. Now you have Christian songs and Christian shirts and Christian, Christian, you know, I don't know, Christian chairs and Christian whatever, Christian cars. But <laughs> I I was really excited about the Lord. But I too can drift. And these are the tendencies. started becoming really cynical and complaining a lot about everything. You know, about the pastor, about the church, about this and that and the other. About the students. <laughs> um, don't feel people appreciate me enough start getting angry, just discontent. And I know I'm drifting. So when we see Saul drifting away, what will he do with that? How far will he allow himself to go? And we're going to read about that. And for David, the man who knew God so well, he too drifted. So because you go through a period of drifting in your life, you've not lost your salvation. This is not something you lose. And we've gone through this before in this class, but not in a while. But all this is, is up there. The messages are there. When you read, for example, in the book of Hebrews, about slipping and, and not being able to be drawn back and how, uh, how baptism saves you, this is very clear. That was always to Jewish believers... Those who had come to the Lord in Judaism, and that was Paul's warning to them and the Scripture's warning to, to them in the book of Hebrews, whoever the author was, about the 70 AD judgment that was to come. If they did not separate themselves, and if they did not get baptized so that it separated themselves from the Jewish community of that day, they would be under that 70 AD judgment. They had to separate themselves and eventually move out of that city because the judgment was coming. That was something specifically for them concerning their physical lives that they were going to lose. It was not their spiritual lives. We're not losing our salvation, but boy, can we slip pretty far. We can slip to the point where it's unrecognizable that we've been saved. But there is a way back. Remember what I just read about what Spurgeon said. Where you found salvation is where you can go. The foot of the cross. And this is redeemable. One day, one day you will start slipping. And you'll wonder, I was so excited about the Lord at this time when I was in college. Now I feel like I have no relationship. You're not the only one. You're not unique in that regard. And there is a way back. And there is a way back into the restoration of fellowship. You come back to the Lord. Don't allow yourself to go so far that you get like Saul, that end up dying in misery. But get the restoration that comes. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truth of Your Word, for the kindness that You show to us. Father, I thank you because you can change the heart in an instant. That if people don't know you, they can say, Lord, forgive me and come into my life. And the very same prayer that got them saved can bring them back into restoration when they've fallen. Father, let them know that. Father, pray for these young people. Father, that that when they see these signs in their lives of becoming cynical and angry and bitter and discontent and complaining, Father, that they would know that they are drifting and they would pray to You, seek Your face and be drawn back. Father, thank You for the truth that You can save a man, a woman, in a single instant. Their heart can be changed. And Father, that there is redemption, and also rebuilding that can likewise change. Father, thank You for Your mercies. In the name of Jesus, Amen.